0: What does it mean to connect to your future at Lake Michigan College? They connect you to your future opportunities. They partner with local industries and employers, ensuring their programs align
1: to the needs of the community's workforce. Lake Michigan College can help you get to the future you want. Visit lakemichigancollege.edu. Good morning. My name is John Smetanka, and the name of our program is With Respect. This morning's guest on With Respect is Hannah Rossner. Hannah is uh, amazingly an amazing director of a movie that's just come out, a mockumentary called Park City. We'll be talking with her about that, but she's also an author. At age 15, she wrote a novel and got it published at age 16. We're now talking with Hannah Rossner. With Respect, we'll be right back. Hannah, how are you this morning? I'm doing great. Good, good. All right. Everybody starts off with this. Hannah, where are you from originally?
0: I'm originally from Bridgman, Michigan. Yeah, that's right. I was born in Saint Joseph, yeah. and I lived here until I was uh, 18.
1: Huh. all right. Where'd you go to school?
0: I went to Bridgman High School. I mean, Bridgman uh, Middle School and High School. I actually went somewhere in Maryland for elementary school and. Uh, then when I graduated. I went to Columbia College in Chicago.
1: That's the uh, our College of Arts and Science, or Arts and primarily Arts, arts. It's liberal arts school. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, we've had the um, now he's the former uh, CEO, the ex CEO. Pardon me, chairman of the board, mm-hmm. um, Alan Turner has oh, been right. on our program several times. Oh, great! So, Anna, what what got you into movies? For pity's sakes.
0: Well, I don't know. I think I it was just kind of the only thing I ever really wanted to do. I started watch, seeing lots of films when I, was, when I was younger with my mom. She took me to see Contact and Titanic, and I loved just seeing films on the big screen. And I, for a while, entertained the idea of being an actress, but then I figured out that I had a lot more choices and a lot more control if I was on the other side of the camera. So <laughs> I decided I wanted to do, be a director and and I so I went to film school, and, and here I am.
1: Well, you know, it's funny. I did a pilot for a TV show, for a, a version of this show. And in the process of doing that, I found out just exactly what you mean. You know, you're, I'm used to being in control right. on my show. When I went on to the TV side, I had a I had a cameraman telling me what to do. I had a director telling me what to do. And I had a sound man telling me what to do. And... I lost control. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it was <Yep>. them. <laughs> it's the best part of being a director.
0: You tell everybody what to do. Yeah. You know, it's really the, I, I would work on a lot of sets in college. I would, you know, go be the, the, you know, hold the boom mic or, you know, help the set decorators or whatever it is. And it wasn't until I started directing, I was like, this is cool. This, this is, is neat. This is the best. Yeah. This is You tell everybody what to do. And it's all about your vision and everyone. But everyone works together. It's not a completely like I'm not a dictator. I don't just say you do that and I don't listen yeah, to anyone. Right yeah. now
1: you aren't. But wait no, right, <laughs> true. Your, your 23rd movie. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> you want to do what? Yeah. No, you not. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> all right, Anna, tell me about your family. Where, uh, where are they? what are they composed of and you know where are they from?
0: Well my family's originally from Des Plaines, Illinois. My parents met uh, in college at U of I. I'm wearing their their sweatshirt right now. You yeah. really can't see that but um, and uh, they so they raised me in Michigan and right now my dad is um, working in Minneapolis. He's going to be home this weekend. Uh, he is a contractor for nuclear power plants so he's the more analytical, smart one in that my mom is incredibly smart, but in a different way. And, uh, and then she's an artist and a yoga instructor and she's been a huge inspiration in my life, a photographer, illustrator. She does it all writer, excellent writer. And, uh, and then I have a little brother, Dylan, who lives in Huntington beach, um, California, which is about an hour South of me. So I get to see him every once in a while, which is great. And, uh, he, is uh, also a musician, so makes some electronic music. He's very talented. So, well,
1: you know, I've, I've met your brother, yeah. and uh, he's not, he, little is is just only an right. age. <laughs>
0: <laughs> little as in younger. He's yeah. very tall and intimidating.
1: <laughs> yeah, but and and I met your dad and mom. Your mom has been on our show uh, talking about autism mm-hmm. and. Um, has been just an extraordinary, um, uh, given me a lot of information about autism and uh, from all different aspects, and just an amazing person. So I I enjoyed having her on the show three times, which yeah. is unusual for That's us. Great. Now, uh, you started in the Bridgman schools. At some point, you decided to start writing. Mm-hmm. Why?
0: I've I don't know that I ever really decided I've been writing my whole life I think since I could hold a pen and paper I've been writing stories and you know when I was a kid I would I would kind of be the ringleader of the group in terms of like this is what we're gonna today we're on a pirate ship and you're you know you're gonna walk the plank and that was always me so I was kind of I've been a storyteller I think my whole life and I think you know I would I would write Books, I'd start writing like the new Star Wars sequel, but you know, I wouldn't ever finish anything. Mm -hmm. And so it was about when I was 14, 15, I decided I wanted to write this book. And I just, I I don't know how I had time. I had less time in high school than I've ever had in terms of I was just in every extracurricular activity. I was in a play, I was in two sports, I was going to school. But I would write, you know, on a napkin or on the back of my planner or whenever I had a a free moment. And it was fun. It was like a completely different world than the life I was living. Um, So I basically, you know, wrote that – finished that novel in a matter of a few months and just decided – Maybe I can get this published. Who knows? And mm-hmm. I, I was I was pretty um, relentlessly ambitious as a teenager. So I, I, <laughs> as opposed
1: to now, <laughs> yeah. Well, you know,
0: now I, I sometimes I get into things. The movie was the same way. I mean, I'll, we can get into that later. But mm-hmm. sometimes I get into things not really knowing how. Difficult it's going to be, and how many obstacles there are going to be, mm-hmm. and how the odds are against you. And if you do know that going in, you probably won't do it. Mm-hmm. You probably will be mm-hmm. too discouraged. So That's everything right. I've just, I've done, I I just go into it with abandon. You know, I don't don't look back. Mm-hmm. So
1: I had a, I had a um, an assistant uh, prosecutor work with me, an assistant U.S. attorney. She became an assistant U.S. attorney, and now she's a judge. And one of the things she. Uh, she told me was this, um, I kept inviting her, hey, come on back, let's uh, go back to Berrien for the law enforcement dinners and uh, law enforcement programs. And she said, John, I really don't want to do that. Why? Because I move forward.
0: Hmm. Yeah. And it,
1: I had a great time doing what I did. Right. But moving forward is more a better use of my time.
0: Right. It's very important. And you got to know what you're doing. And so when, after I after I got the book published, I did write another book, but... Pursuing a career as an author didn't seem, while I love to write, it seemed like you can write a book anytime, anywhere. I wanted to move to Hollywood and I wanted to write movies. And, you know, and again, it was, you know, not that continuing to write books wouldn't be moving forward, but just for me, I felt like I just had to keep pushing myself as -hmm. far as I could go and keep challenging myself. And so getting into the movie business was definitely a, like it, it, and the biggest challenge I've ever faced, or maybe ever will, in my life. Why? Because um, there is a lot of competition, and everyone's like you, or everyone's like you, in terms of there's a lot of people from a small town who maybe, you know, ha- had a lot of success as as a person in a small town. and then when they get to Hollywood, they, they could get lost in the, in the shuffle. There's mm-hmm. so many people trying to do exactly what you're doing. And there's really only a handful of successful story creatives. And to, to try and be one of those people, you have to be the hardest worker. You have to be first in you know, to your job and last to leave. And you have to really, really shine and really make yourself known. And there's just so much to learn. It's very overwhelming when you first, um, when you first undertake you know the challenge of trying to break into the film business and and but it helps to know people and have people that are supportive but you really have to believe in yourself
1: Mm -hmm. let's go back for a minute you 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 actually got your first book published Mm -hmm. um, and is it available i mean is it still out there
0: yeah yeah you can find it on on amazon.com you can you can order it online it's it's easiest to find through the through the publisher publisher's website, which is publishamerica dot com. Publish mm-hmm. America is the name of the company that published it. Um, it's not necess- you won't find it on the shelves, but you can have the bookstore mm-hmm. order it, All right. which is pretty cool.
1: Now, the the name of the book. We better have a name for yes. this book. Yes,
0: yes. The book is called The Ambulance Club.
1: All right. What is it about?
0: It's about a group of teenage girls. It's actually about a girl who moves to. Laurel Canyon, which is now where I live. I had never been there. Um, She moves to Laurel Canyon. She's 16. She's trying to make some friends and she kind of falls into this group of anarchist Catholic schoolgirls. No one knows how ruthless they are, but really, you know, they seem like the popular girls. They get all the guys' attention, but they're always pulling pranks and they're kind of pushing the boundaries as far as they can go. And so Mallory, the main character, gets into it just just because she wants to be liked and get through her last year of school and ends up really getting sucked into this um, this kind of dark world that she's never seen anything like it before and has to f- find a way out. So it becomes a thriller. It kind of starts as a teen drama, which becomes more of a darker thriller. Mm-hmm. So.
1: so how long did it take you to write it?
0: A couple of months, maybe six months. It's uh, it's not a long book. It's about a hundred pages, but it's it's definitely you know young adult fiction. So, um, I always hoped it would catch on with you know like the, the Twilight crowd, I suppose. <laughs> um, but there's no vampires in it. Oh, so, no, unfortunately. No, come on. <laughs> Sorry. You
1: were be- you were behind your time or ahead of your time or yeah. something. I don't know what.
0: Yeah, there was come a me- lot of a, a couple of similar. Uh, books and, and films came out a couple of years after, I, within, within the time that I wrote the book. That was.
1: Could you explain to me? I mean, I understand uh, when I was going, growing up, we used to watch uh, these horror movies and uh, great, whatever. Uh, but why is it so – are they so popular? And, and right, first of all, vampires, Frankenstein – and zombies. Right. All right. Well, yeah. And aliens, space aliens. I
0: can't explain the zombies. That's, I mean, that's a whole, you know, that might, we might get into some sort of socio-economic discussion with the zombies, but the vampires, the the, the Twilight thing, I figured it out. I could not figure it out because I, I wasn't into those books, but it's, it's about forbidden romance. Um. And that has always been a popular topic among, you know, people who love stories, people who love romance and fiction, because, you know at a, for a long period of time it was class that separated people so you would have love stories about you know um warring families who you know romeo and juliet is a classic mm-hmm. forbidden love story and then you ha- would have stories where you know the woman was from a higher class and the man was of a lower class and so they they weren't allowed to be together and it was so tragic and and that's always been popular with especially young women and now that's not really an issue anymore so much or or race, you know, at least in our society. A lot of those boundaries have been pulled down. But if a guy is a vampire and he kind (laughs) of wants to eat you as badly Mm -hmm. as he wants to kiss you, that's Mm -hmm. forbidden romance. So Mm -hmm. I think that's where the fascination might come in.
1: Well, you know, that's actually the best description I have heard about that in my whole, uh, (laughs) I, I, I have never, ever, ever been able to figure that out. And you've now answered probably something else, which is the uh, the Fifty Shades of Grey. Right. Same thing. Right. And I, I was talking to a, a woman who was doing a, a screenplay about a case of ours, and this was just when this Fifty Shades of Grey came out. I said, what is this? And she said, I have never seen it, but I have a theory, and I will be happy to exchange mm. a theory, but I will not discuss the book. any anyway, rate." Uh, but it is interesting to me how there are continuing themes which, um, which keep popping up in, in, in literature, Bram Stoker, right. um, uh, uh, Frankenstein, right. and, and whatnot. I, I had a chance to interview um, Gillian Flynn, who wrote uh, Gone Girl. Yes, great and I, book. Great book. I haven't read it yet. Oh, I, I read her prior books. Excellent. And I asked her, after I read this book, I thought, this is a strange book. Mm-hmm. And strange characters. Yeah. So I said, uh, Gillian, Why? why did you write this? And she said, ever since I was a little girl, I wanted to scare myself. Yeah. And that was it. Yeah. (laughs) She said, I just like to scare myself.
0: It's hard to scare people these days. It's hard to really do, really surprise people. I think they've seen everything, you know, you've got like, I I worked um, close, not closely with, but I worked in proximity of Sasha Baron Cohen, who directed, you know, the dictator and, and Borat. And, you know, he's done, he's, done everything he's all pushed all the boundaries and and it's really hard to shock people so you gotta really figure out what scares you or what makes you laugh out loud or what makes you cry and try to uh, you know evoke that and others with your work so but that's you're right that's a really good point if she tried to scare herself.
1: yeah she wanted to just yeah, scare herself, to scare herself. Uh, we're talking to Hannah uh, Rossner who is the director and actor and screenwriter of a, uh, a, Mooney, a movie, a mock documentary, or mockumentary, uh, which was shown recently at the Vickers Theater called Park City, and we'll be talking more about that later. This is With Respect, and my name is John Smotanka. We'll be right back. We're now back on With Respect uh, with Hannah Rosner, who is a director, writer, uh, novelist, a uh, multi-talented person uh, whose, whose uh, mockumentary, uh, Park City, was recently shown at the Vickers Theater and is going national. This is John Smutanka. Now, Hannah, all right, let's get to, uh, to the Park City Because this, first of all, this is not your first venture into making films. Right. Tell tell, first of all, tell them about that. What else did you have?
0: Well, I've I've shot a couple other short films. I did a film in college called "I'll Be Your Sailor," which was based on a short story by Joe Mino, who's actually a uh, famous writer from Chicago, novelist, and uh, also a a teacher at Columbia. I believe he still is a professor at Columbia. Got to meet him. Um, That film did. Uh, did the festival circuit for a bit, it's just a short, did another film called Homemade, which was about a couple of, uh, about a little girl who just wanted to fit in. Um, and uh, then I did a couple of music videos in the last few years and, and, and some spec commercials that I shot. Uh, one of the fl- music videos was called Lisa, Lisa, Lisa. It was about, it's. I mean, the song is called Lisa, Lisa, Lisa. It's um, by the band Yellow Alex. Um, that was all one take. That sh- that music video was all just one continuous shot, mm-hmm. um, which was very, very cool. But Park City is my first feature film.
1: What got you into doing that?
0: I went to film school, you know, Columbia, and when I moved to L.A., I just started mostly working in industry jobs that aren't always as production-based. In college, I did a lot of work on shoots or... In post-production houses and once I got to Hollywood I wanted to work for a studio so I had a couple of internships and I had one job as a post PA which a PA is like the person production, that assistant. Basic, production assistant right that runs around all I did was drive around with hard drives and <laughs> but it was cool I'd go to the Warner Brothers lot I really got to know the the town that way um, and then after uh, a few few months of of working for a screenwriter, I somehow got it in my head that I had time to make a film, a feature film. <laughs> and uh, because what happened was my friend Dave and I, Dave Hoffman, who's in, in one of the leads in Park City, we decided one day at the very last minute to drive to Sundance. And I we had like $100 and, and we didn't really know anyone. We knew a couple people that were screening their films. And we, I said, let's just go. I've always wanted to go to Sundance. It's supposed to be so cool. And we had no idea what we were in for. We, we do, we just got into a lot of ran very random adventures. Met some people. We met Bill Murray, which was very yeah. exciting. And uh, when when we got back to LA, we would tell we would tell everyone the story about our trip to Sundance and all the little hijinks we got into. And so the next year, Sundance was quickly approaching, and. You know, I, I said, we should go back to Sundance and make a documentary. You know, we should just film our experience there. And then somebody had the idea. I think it was my friend Mike, uh, who's one of my mentors, actually, Mike Shamoy, um, had the idea that it should be like a, a narrative and that we should give it a storyline. And, you know, every movie has a simple premise. This one was, you know, a couple of filmmakers go to Sundance to screen their film, but they lose their film print the night before their screening.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: So it was a similar structure to like the hangover or any of those movies where like, you know, what happened last night, we gotta retrace our steps to Mm -hmm, find mm -hmm. find the crucial the crucial MacGuffin in this case, the movie. And Oh
1: come on, tell me I love that you used the word the MacGuffin. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. You gotta tell our audience the MacGuffin. Uh, The MacGuffin is
0: whatever the protagonist, the main character of the film. Is looking for whatever they're seeking. So, and you know, I think it was the rabbit's foot in one of the Mission Impossible movies, and you know, or it's the or it's the notebook, or it's. Do you know know. who
1: came up with the MacGuffin?
0: I do, but I can't Uh, remember who. Alfred Hitchcock. Hitchcock. Yes, yes, yes.
1: He came up with it because just for what you said, Mm -hmm. it's the thing that they're looking for. Right, what they need. Yeah, it's literally
0: the object. So, so in this movie, our MacGuffin is the film, which was a little ridiculous because they, they don't need to actually screen film on a on a reel on a 35 millimeter reel but you know it was very important that they find this thing. So anyway, so we had this idea for the for the movie and we were, I wrote a script with my best friend Julia Turner, who's a very very talented writer, absolutely hilarious, the funniest person I've ever met and just a great writer. And she did she and I would pass the script back and forth. I mean, we were sitting at our desks. Um she was we were interns at the same time and we would you know, come up with ideas over Gmail chat. Mm -hmm. I'd say, what do you think about this? What if they go, you know, what if they lose the film print and it's been at the house the whole time? And she's like, oh, that's pretty good. All right. And so we just pass the script back and forth. And she, a lot of the great lines are hers. A lot of the great lines are mine. And a lot of the great lines are, were completely improvised on the scene. So, yeah. So anyway, so... Once we had the script, we were like, this is actually really funny. I mean, we <laughs> we did like a, a roundtable read where we got all the actors over to my house and we all read the script all the way through. And Julia read all the action lines that aren't actually in the script or in the movie. And we were just dying laughing. We were like, this is really funny. We <laughs> got to gotta shoot this. So we went to Park City, uh, drove up for four days there and back. It was a harrowing adventure in terms of just... Bad weather and um, not really being, not really knowing where we were all going to stay. We mm-hmm. stayed, we, we couch surfed with a very nice man um, named Phidias uh, who lived in uh, in Salt Lake City. Crashed on his floor, and when we came back. From Park City, we didn't really have enough footage for a whole movie. In fact, we probably only have had enough footage for about a a fifth of the movie. Mm-hmm. And a lot of those scenes that we shot up on the on the drive up just got thrown out because we were like, we can do with this much better. So we reshot some of it, but some of it we kept. Um, and and then over the course of this the next year, we shot every weekend or every other weekend because we all had day jobs. Um, and we're cutting the movie in in between um, in, in between scenes we were shooting, so that that was about yeah that was about six months of you know a couple days here and there of shooting probably about twenty two shoot, total shooting days, and then we had a movie so just you know cut it, did the sound did the music.
1: Now, um, the the movie you talked about the the uh, thirty five millimeter yeah and that is what traditionally people have grown up with over right. the past what 40 years 50 years right. that isn't what films are made of these days oh well, certainly is Sometimes
0: not what you Sometimes there's there a lot of studio movies they do still shoot on film but for the most part it's it's more and more being shot on digital it's very expensive to shoot on film film costs them a lot of money and and because it's less prevalent um they there's processing fees there's a lot it's just more expensive to get a film like actual film made and shot to have everything on digital is
1: okay cheap. we've got we have uh, eight millimeters which started that's what uh, uh, the home films were mm-hmm. in the old days and right. then you've got you you if you really got professional, you went up to sixteen mm-hmm. millimeters that's what
0: I started shooting on it 16. was okay
1: yeah. now then it was thirty five and that's what traditionally I think movies were made for fifty years right. Now my question is uh, about that: is when, when, di- when did digital come in, and and how different is it to shoot a movie from thirty-five, the the equipment, the the perspective, the timing, all of that to a digital? Is there a difference?
0: Absolutely, and one of the main differences, um, at least from a from a directorial point of view is that when you have film you have to be incredibly deliberate about all of your choices not saying you shouldn't be with digital but you have a lot more freedom with digital to say oh well we can shoot all day long you know we 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 have we just it's all on a card you know all all of the the digital video that we're shooting is going to end up on a computer so we've got plenty of space for that. So we got all day. Take your time. Do as many takes as you need. You know, and you, you, in a way, you have more freedom, but it also can be limiting because you don't have to make, like I said, such deliberate choices. Whereas when you're making a film, you've got 400, well, not 400 feet, but you know, you have a couple, a couple thousand feet of film, and you know, whoever, however many seconds, maybe six minutes or 12 minutes. Um, where you got to get this shot before, you know, your light is going to change and everything just has to be precise. Everything, you know, all the mise en scene, which is everything in mm-hmm. the scene has got to be exactly as, as it needs to be. And you really want to get those performances right on the first couple tries because you really don't have as much uh, film. You know, if if you have lots of money, I guess you can use as much film as you want. But for most filmmakers, especially starting out, you would prefer to shoot on digital when you got all the time you need Mm -hmm. and and you can change a lot of things um you know right in the camera or make adjustments that are just it's just a a bit easier than working with a film camera and also when then in post you then your footage is right there you don't need to take it to the lab Mm -hmm. you don't need to get it digitized you don't need to get it processed so you also have a little bit more freedom in how you can manipulate your film in post um and I've I've learned how to shoot on film, which was I thought something really great that Columbia did. I think more and more they're switching to digital as well, just in their curriculum. But it was a it was a valuable experience being able to, um, just just to have the constraints and have the limitations. I think limit personally. I think limitations are the best thing for a creative person. Mm. So why? Because it forces you to to. I don't want to keep saying think deliberately, but really that's the best way to put it. It really forces you to um, make sure that all of your choices are informed and that you've had to put a lot more effort and thought because you don't have, um, there's, there's some films that I've seen that have been made for $7,000 and they're brilliant. I mean, Primer is an example. I don't know if you've ever seen that film, but it's, it's a brilliant film. It was Shane Carruth, his first film. And, it it's a bit abstract. I mean it's very abstract in its subject matter, but um they made it for seven thousand dollars and they really had to make it count. So, mm-hmm. you know, all the effects uh they you know, are are very you know, precise. Um whereas, you know, in a multi million dollar Hollywood movie, um, they they don't seem to be as creative and, you know, some people don't really know why that is and it's it's not a lack of vision from the director necessarily. Mm-hmm. It's just well, we've got all these actors to take care of, and so many people on mm-hmm. set, and it's just—it mm-hmm. can be madness. And there's just really not as many. There, there's not the same limitations that you have when you're making a, a, a small budget film.
1: Mm-hmm. So when I'm when I go to the movies, um, and I've done that for years. We—that's a thing in our family. We like it. But how I, I've noticed a transformation in kind of shooting that takes place, um, where now seem to be, back in the the, the, the oldest movies, the 20s, 30s, 40s, uh, you see more set shots, that is, the camera is fixed and you move from place to place, but it's, it's with separate pictures, mm-hmm. se- separate, uh, I don't even know what the technical term is, but if you're looking at a person's face... And they're a part of a conversation. The face doesn't. The camera doesn't move. The face may move and, right. and, and interpret. But then, if you wanted the other part of the conversation, you flip over and you do a uh, a second shot mm-hmm. on the um, the other person of the conversation. Again, fixed. Right now, I see many more movies which in which the camera jumps around. Mm-hmm. It, it is it is moving. Mm-hmm. And I'm wondering, sometimes it's, I think it's very distracting. Other times it, it works, it, it gives some real life. But what do you mean you that did there's some of that?
0: That there's more handheld shots? Yeah, that, yeah, yeah, handheld, yeah, yeah. Well, that's kind of become popular, just I think even more so in the last 10 years, especially with. Uh, a lot, of the popularity of a lot of found footage films, starting with you know Blair Witch Project, and oh,
1: start me on that. Yeah, <laughs> <one>. <laughs> start me on. We're going to talk. Oh, we'll about get back Blair to that. Witch, yeah,
0: gotcha. But films like that, <laughs> that, that this whole found footage phenomenon, it, it happened around the same time that reality television became popular. I think people were just like, I want to watch something as close to reality as possible, which is silly because reality None TV is. is completely scripted, right? Um, or just you know, people they they only cut the interesting stuff which I don't find interesting. But you know, back to handheld camera. I think that what that's all about is it really puts you in the action. Sometimes I do find it distracting. I've I've watched some handheld films recently where i'm like just put it on a tripod god (laughs) yes all the movement yeah
1: (laughs) i'm getting seasick yeah (laughs) you really have to have a talented
0: camera person to Mm -hmm. uh to operate and i I personally thought that our operators did a great job it was mostly megan boundy our cinematographer um and it it can be just a practical thing you don't have as much time to shoot you're kind of on the move and so Mm -hmm if you just put it on your shoulders instead of on sticks, you know, on the tripod, you you got more freedom to follow the actors. You don't really have to plan your so- shot so much, which we mm-hmm. hardly ever planned. We, we didn't do a lot of shot lists. Um, we just kind of, which gave it more of the impro- improvisational vibe. And so the reason you see a lot of handheld TV, uh, you know, like with The Office, that gives it this improvisational vibe. I mean, they are improving a lot of their lines, but it also makes it feel like you're right there, and these people are so quick with their with their jokes. And there's mm-hmm. just something about like zooming in on the you know on the person's face at that moment instead of cutting to a closer shot that really makes you feel closer to the action and mm-hmm. makes you feel
1: closer to the characters. We're going to take a break right now. We're talking to Hannah Rossner, who is the director, actor, screenwriter, chief cook, and bottle washer for the uh, the documentary Park City. This is John Smetanka. We're talking on With Respect. We'll be right back. We're now back on, with respect, with Hannah Rosner, who is the producer, innovator, writer, songwriter, whatever, whatever, for the movie, the mockumentary, a full-length movie uh, called Park City, recently shown at the, uh, at the Vickers Theater in Three Oaks. But uh, I have a question for you. I saw The Blair Witch Project. And I read the hype before that. I thought it was—I can't use the word on, on radio. It was awful.
0: Yeah.
1: I really didn't like well, it. It's not a good movie. It's not a good movie, but they've <laughs> got this wonderful play. When it's uh, Time Magazine, mm-hmm. Newsweek Magazine, yeah, and people flock to the theaters. And it's—you know—you go to the—you go to a movie. It's like reading a book, that is very popular. And you think it's garbage, but you're afraid to say it because, right. well, you know, everybody else oh, must sure. like it. Yeah. it's That's the value of the publicity angle. Mm-hmm. And the it's the right place at the right time right. angle.
0: I try to see films before hearing the hype, which is very difficult in the Twitter age. But I, I really try to get to a movie. I'll often see a movie at midnight, even if I am not that excited about it, even if I don't. Think it's going to be that great? If I know it's going to be newsworthy, it's going to be making headlines. If people have been talking about it before it comes out, I try to see it midnight on Thursday or whenever it, as soon as it comes out, so that I don't get to hear all the word of mouth because that t- can often ruin it. Because you, you know, you have all this enthusiasm to see a film and then people. People lower your expectations, and then you go in thinking it's going to be bad. Or they raise your expectations, and you go in thinking it's better than it's than it turns out to be. And mo- going to the movies is a completely personal experience. So there, other people's opinions can color your own opinion. But for the most part, people some people like movies, some people hate that same movie. You really never know what it's going to be. So back to Blair Witch, I you know, or or films like that where. You're like, well, what's the big deal what's mm-hmm. what's so impressive about that? I've seen so many films that i I'm just like, what you know, what's all this hype about? But when something is new, regardless of if it's actually quality, you know, mm-hmm. if it's if it's good performances or if it's um, you know what we traditionally think of as you know the aspects of a great film, if it's new and people can then, uh, a lot of studios, I think, cap- can capitalize on something like Blair Witch because they made it for for no money. Mm-hmm. And so right now you've got um, I'm going to butcher his name, but I think it's Oren Pelly, uh, the director of Paranormal Activity, who's uh, or Jason Blum. You know these these d- directors and producers of uh, low budget horror films, found footage horror films. I I personally think that they're genius because they are able to make. So much money at the box office, and yet their films are made for less than a million dollars, which is mm-hmm. not a lot of money in Hollywood. Mm-hmm. So, something like The Blair Witch, they they got a lot of publicity. Part of it was because people were scared; people had never seen something like that before, mm-hmm. where they're you know walking around in the woods, and that could be them. You know, that's part mm-hmm. of the found footage. Mm-hmm. That's the other thing about found footage. What is, what is
1: found footage?
0: Found footage is like the the concept is you think that this movie could be real. Um, so mm-hmm. a lot of people thought The Blair Witch was real. I mean, that was part of the genius of its marketing campaign. Uh, it was a bit of a hoax for a while that some people actually thought that this footage was literally found. Um, someone's camera had been found and mm-hmm. they mm-hmm. cut all this footage together and released it, which is absurd. Obviously, no one would really do that. Um, or Catfish was another film that uh, people still, I think, are debating whether it's real or not. But the, the basically, the films that are seem like they could have just been found and cut together later that they really happen. They're real events that were recorded. That's a found footage film. Mm-hmm. So, but yeah, so I, I think the, the Blair Witch, you know, that got a lot of hype because people had never seen anything like that before. And Hollywood studios saw that film and thought, this is genius. If people want, if people are actually scared by a movie that was made for a couple grand by a couple of kids in the woods, we're going to do that. Yeah.
1: So well, that now now that brings us right into the money making or the business aspect of movies. Now, in your talk last night uh, after the movie, um, you talked about um, and and in the movie, there's a, you play a character who is among these four main characters, and they're each different kinds of people. Right. Um, you were sort of the the mother superior, or the the, the business person. Right. In fact, there's an interesting dialogue that you have with uh, with one of your fellow actors about: Are you an artist or are you a business person? Right. Mix the two for us. Tell us what it's. I'm going to get into what it's like in Hollywood, using that term in the broadest um, uh, sense. Um, but I want. I, what about making money? Is that is. How does that fit in with your artistic desire to create something?
0: Right. Well, the the thing about writing is that it's free and you don't need a lot of money to do it. However, to have ever, anyone ever read it or have anyone want to make your film or see your film, you really do have to have uh, the financial means to get, get that out there. So, you know, in this day and age with, again, I think I call it the tw- the twitter age or whatever you want to call it you know the fact that everything is available online you can at least get an audience for your material if you're a director or um not really a writer but if you're if you're a director if you've got film online that people can see they can access it and you can get popular just there's plenty of people who have become famous just from youtube um Uh, You know, the viral, the whole viral phenomenon is things can become popular without you having necessarily a lot of money. Mm -hmm. But really, if you, if you know, you want to make a film that people are going to see, it's got to get a little bit of money behind it. And um, it it kind of begins to snowball, you know, once you start um, getting people interested that are going to invest. And then that means that more people will see the film because it's got higher production value. So, Park City. You know, we we shot that on a pretty small budget, but people have told me it's got good production value. It seems like we got some good locations and some, mm-hmm. um, and it's believable. I think that's the main thing about production value. It at least has to be believable.
1: Production value—that's another phrase that that uh, we hear now on the uh, uh, out of the movie industry and out of the entertainment in- industry generally. What is that? How do you define that?
0: Well, it's what it. Technically, production value is what the movie looks to be worth. So. You know, if there's special effects and you get some cool explosions and you get some cool you know trucks flying off a cliff that's that gives your movie a lot of production value. And that's something they really stress in film school is make the most of your budget, so what they really mean is have the highest production value for the least, the amount, least of amount of money. Yeah, <laughs> so get as much, you know, if you have more a, a crane shot or you've got a, you know, long tracking shots, that'll add more production value than if you did that same scene shot just, you know, with a couple of static shots. So that's essentially production value. And the more production value a film has, generally the more people it, the more uh, the wider an audience it's going to appeal to. A lot of the superhero films appeal to a really wide audience partially because there's a lot of fans or there's like already a built-in fan base but also then you know you get guys flying around in in suits and they're fighting bad guys and anybody can can watch something like that and be entertained or that's at least the way that studios you know look at it look at it
1: yeah well now you as a as uh, a novice, so to speak, which you aren't. We'll talk about that in a minute. But uh, as a novice in filmmaking, creation, you have a reason for doing it. Is it. Are you going to become rich doing this? Is that what oh, you think?
0: Oh, I, I will be honest. I don't I, – I didn't get into this business because I want to make money. I know there's money to be made, and I've mm-hmm. seen a lot of the houses and a lot of the cars of the of – the, um, successful story creatives. But if I wanted to, if I thought I was going to get rich off of doing what I'm doing, I probably would have gotten into a different profession. Um, mm-hmm. But there's nothing else I've ever wanted to do. So um, so no, I, I, that's, that's not really the goal. And I, I honestly don't even really want to be famous. I see a lot of famous people that seem like they don't particularly enjoy being mm-hmm. f- being on the cover of every magazine or, or whatever and i'm not an actress so it's very unlikely that i would ever attain that kind of fame but um as a writer you're generally more behind the scenes mm-hmm. um but uh but it, the the success comes from seeing getting the most amount of people to see your work and to you know critical acclaim is really the goal at least for me i mean mm-hmm. that's that's where i'd like to end up is being a an artist that uh becomes a household name people know my work and people um, think that it's good that's mm-hmm. really it, it, it doesn't i don't think it's it's so exciting to to be famous if people think that if if you aren't getting great reviews um or you know what that and and a lot of successful people have gotten Start out their career getting bad reviews or mm-hmm. making films that people don't think are good, and they just have to they got to keep going. And I, I'm sh- hopefully I would be happy to direct a quote unquote bad studio film, you know, in the next few years because that gives me the great experience. But eventually, mm-hmm. the goal is to is to just make make good films. Good films, mm-hmm.
1: yeah. The one one of the things talking about money there there are myths abound everywhere about how you're going to make a bunch of money in a particular field, and I, I have to over and over again uh, to respond to people who think all oh, lawyers are rich, and in fact, there are very few lawyers who make a lot of money. Very few, and most of them are struggling along. And if if they're honest, and and I've seen their some of their uh, books, uh, they're making uh, an average amount of money, but they're surviving. They're paying for their bills. But the reason that people stay in the law and f- for long periods of time is there's something about it which resonates with their psyche right. and they achieve whether it is they they go in and do a great closing argument uh and and people say, "Oh, right. that was wonderful, that was really great and that gives them the the oomph to continue on, or it is some financial reward or the possibility of financial reward, or I'm known as a great lawyer. All of those things. Same thing applies in your business.
0: Yeah, and I'd say that for me personally, and its I guess I'm not really getting to the heart of why I want to do this. It's not just because I want to be known as being a great filmmaker, and it's not just to make money and have a nice house and family someday. It's really... Um, at the core of it, because I really want to help people, and I've always um, been the kind of person that would, as- since I was a kid, would aspire to do something great that that helps people. And you know, I kind of had a, a crisis of conscience in the last few years where I thought, well, am I really helping anyone by by working in the movie business?" I mean, there's it's it's a tough business, and there's a lot of um, harsh harsh critics, and there's a lot of people that are dishonest and. You know, just in the business itself, and there's a lot of films that I don't think help anybody positively. Mm-hmm. They're, they're, just pu- you know, they're just, they're just pure popcorn, you know, eating movie watching experience. But I do believe that that art is important to helping our society learn. It has storytelling from the dawn of man has been Mm -hmm. one of the most important Mm -hmm. things to shaping us as as a species and making us, you know, learn morality and learn, um, you know, lessons that we carry on from generation to generation. And films inspire people. And even if they're pure entertainment, they are two hours of people feeling good and being entertained and possibly being, you know-
1: Educated. Being
0: educated, right. So, you know, and and art has always done that for us. And film is the is for me the most powerful medium because it reach it can reach a wide audience. It's not just sound. It's not just picture. It's a combination of the two. You hear voices. You see performances. You go to places you can't. You might not be able to go in your real life. So, so film is essentially, I think, one of the great ways that you know. And being a storyteller is one of the great ways that you can really help people in, in a in a kind of an abstract way.
1: Movies and movie makers and screenwriters, it seems to me, help to create the culture, and they are the result of the culture. There's a symbiotic relationship Absolutely. between the culture and the creator. And um, that's why it's always fascinating for me to go to a movie and not only to look at the movie and, and the people who make it, but rather see how this reflects what's going on in the rest of society. Right. And I saw The Lone Ranger. It was a terrible movie. Yeah. It was absolutely abysmal. And but it did it did help me to say you know what? The public is not so stupid as you you want to think because it bombed. Yep. <laughs> it was yeah. terrible. Yeah. And the reaction was was awful. Right. All right, we're going to take a break again. We're talking to Hannah Rossner, who is a movie maker, a director, an author. Uh, screenwriter, chief cook, and bottle washer for Park City. This is John Smetanka. The name of our program is With Respect, and we'll be right back. Now back with on re, with respect with Hannah Rossner, who is a uh, movie uh, everything for Park City. She is it. Uh, Chief cook and bottle washer is the easiest way to say it. And this is John Smetanka. Now Hannah, when we broke um, the magic question that I I've been holding off on, uh, how old are you?
0: I'm 25.
1: And you've made a movie, you've written a book, and you've and you've made. Uh, uh, mu- music videos, and you're working a full-time job out in, in uh, California. Where do you get the energy?
0: I I don't know. I I think there. I just don't feel right if I'm not writing, and it's always been that way. It's kind of it's kind of just something I need to do, uh, and and so it's the energy really comes from just this core. Ambition that I've always had, and whether or not I have the energy, like I make time for these things. So, you know, because it's important to me. So I don't. I've always been busy. I've just, uh, mm-hmm. you know, I, you know, when I was in high school, I was in a million sports and I was in a million plays, and I was just always, always had my hands in something. In college, I was also a musician and I was in a band and we went on tour and I had like a completely different life than I do now and. I, but I've always consistently been creating through, along the way, and I think it's because I can't not. I I really can't just take a break from writing. And when
1: I talk, it's to, down deep inside. Yeah, it's it's in there, you know.
0: And sometimes I talk to to friends of mine who say, you know, I I want to I want to be a writer. I just can't find the time. I I say, you know, you got to just make the time. That's the only advice. There's I can give a you.
1: famous. There's a, a well um, uh, thought out. A short saying, and that is, if you want a job done, ask a busy person right, because they're busy for a reason, mm-hmm. but also they tend to be the ones who can take on a little bit more and yeah. and get it done, yeah. get a job done,
0: yeah, you know you just got to figure out what works for you, and there's there's a lot of things going on in my life, and um the I guess I just I really have to prioritize and sometimes I have to make tough choices between you know do I am I going to go out with my friends tonight am I going to see my boyfriend am I going to you know go to this uh, you know and uh, whatever it is that's happening I'm a very social person so it's I always sometimes wonder how I ended up being a writer because generally when you think of a writer you <laughs> think of someone in their you know locked up in their room with <laughs> yeah, their typewriter yeah, yeah. <laughs> typewriter um, but but. Also to be a writer you have to experience life and you have to go out and, and try new things and and observe people so uh, which is actually something that I call window time window time is because I, I kind of uh, schedule every little moment in my life even if I don't want to sometimes I, I just have to it's
1: compulsive yeah I, yeah I know, I know what you're even doing. <laughs> even my free
0: time I'm like okay I have two hours to relax you know quote unquote this isn't really relaxing but you know so, you will relax right, <laughs> right now body right sit down and just watch tv even if it's bad yeah. um but but yeah window time it, to me is like the time that you spend not writing just observing and gathering you know material and gathering inspiration and that's something i've really focused on this year is uh trying to hone hone my creative muscle and 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 follow my follow my passion whatever i think is interesting or different or something that i might want to One day, write about even if it's not that particular subject. It's just you know the people. There's new people I'm going to meet or new experiences I'm going to have. So I make time for that kind of thing too. Um, It's not just work all the time. Yeah. But
1: one of the things that in your movie last evening, you uh, one of the other areas that you raised was you're bugging your your friends to get out and to make contacts. Right. And just you know, you're at a party. You're not here to do just to, to enjoy yourself yeah. you're out here to meet people right. when I was campaigning I remember the first event I camp, ever campaigned at uh, my, my, uh, my campaign manager watched me and at the end of the evening it was a dinner of about 200 people and I had a great time I loved it I had a nice dinner and I talked to two or three really interesting people and she came out afterwards and she says what did you do tonight what did you do And I said, Well, this is a great event. She said, This was a catastrophe. Why? How many hands did you shake? Well, I I shake, you know, 15, 20 people and talked. You need to shake every single hand in that room. And you had dinner, didn't you? And I said, Well, yeah, it's a dinner. I'm supposed to. You don't eat. (laughs) That's not the purpose for you being here. So I turned to you and I say, I watched in that movie. You had friends your your co stars were uh talking to other people or hitting on some people that they wanted to spend the night with or whatever right, and you kept saying no, no no <laughs>
0: we're ha- we're here for a purpose we're here
1: for a purpose yeah uh how much of that do you do in your real life
0: I'm pretty terrible at that in real life actually um i i I'm more like Joey, I think in real life or yeah. something i guess I, I I'm like the creative person just running around trying to have fun and trying to trying to follow the party and find out where the you know, what what's happening. Because frankly, that's where I've personally made a lot of my connections is uh in the less stuffy I, I just I just don't particularly love networking events, but I drag myself to them all the time. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. my friends um who work at agency Hollywood agencies, they generally are the ones that are like all right, you got to go to this networking event. You got to meet so-and-so from Sony and so-and-so's assistant at, you know, blah, blah, blah company. And, and, uh, I end up meeting people that I love and it's always a good time, but the, having the energy after a 12 hour day at work or after doing, you know, a million mm-hmm. meetings and taking a million notes, going out and, and networking is exhausting. It's not like exactly like you're, it was your campaign manager,
1: mm-hmm.
0: exactly. Like she said, you're not there to socialize. You're there to talk to someone for a grand total of three minutes, figure out where they're, what they do, where they work, what you know, what they can do for you, what they can do for you can do for them, and give them your card and move on to the next person. Mm-hmm. It's absolutely exhausting. It's not a good time, but you can you can meet some great people that either uh can become your friend or a business associate or a, a industry contact. Um, who you can help and therefore can help you in the future. Mm-hmm. So it is very important. And I do stress to a lot of people that I know that moved to Hollywood and are new to just go to absolutely every event. Um, and then another thing that that confounds my non-Hollywood friends is that we go, I go to drinks uh, like every Every other night, maybe three times, two or three times a week, I'll go out for drinks or a breakfast or lunch with uh, a new contact or someone that I haven't seen in a while that works Mm -hmm. at another production company, and that's just a good way to, you know, to foster those contacts um, so that you know, if in a couple weeks I might need a script from their company, they can slip it to me, or if I need uh, a phone number of the the head of their studio for my boss, I can get that. So it's definitely helpful and very important but me personally I'm I I'm good at it I know how to do it I don't really
1: enjoy Why do people fail in Hollywood in movies in in uh and I mean in each of the different realms not acting or directing or screenwriting or production or whatever it happens they're doing why do they fail Well there's two types of failure there's giving up which is
0: in my opinion the greatest failure that, and I'd say you know, seventy-five percent of if not more of the people that go to Hollywood looking for looking for a job say, you know what, I'm gonna just be here for four or five years until I sell a script and then I'm gonna take it from there. And if it doesn't work out, then I'll go home and get in advertising. And I say, if if that's your attitude, you should probably just go in advertising. Mm-hmm. You know, if you have a plan B, I think my mentor actually told me this, you know, if you have a plan B you should stick with plan B because you can't, it, it is going to be a long, hard road and you don't know how long it's going to take, but eventually some semblance of success, I do believe will find you as long as the work is good. So the other kind of failure is if you simply don't have what it takes, if you don't have uh talent and, and I don't, I think talent is a really obscure thing. It's very, it's very abstract. Um, you know, you can have raw natural talent, but but writing is a craft. It's not just something that you know how to do. There are some people that are just naturally good at it, but you still need to learn how to format a screenplay. You'll stu- You still need to learn three act structure. You still need to learn how to transition. All of these things you can learn every day if you want to, or you know, for the rest of your life. Um, and so, if you don't keep learning, uh, your work is not going to get better and you're inevitably going to fail because people can tell studio executives can tell if you know what you're talking about if you've seen the same kind of film to the one that you're pitching or if you've really thought through your main characters um, through line or if you have really thought through the premise of your film or if you just came up with it and decided you know I'm going to go to this meeting and I'll just wing it Mm -hmm. you know people can tell that sort of things you have to be a hard worker Um, so I that that answers your question. Mm-hmm,
1: it does a lot of things. It does. Can... I, in in uh, my world of politics and law, there are a number of different things that cause failure. One is that they really don't belong there. That is their their interests. Uh, are superficial right. in what they're doing, and they don't take it seriously. Another reason is because they get tired and something happens in their lives that just c- crashes them. Uh, a third one is substance abuse we have I've seen a lot of people in politics and and in the the law that uh, um, they drink their lunch mm-hmm. and or they they snort cocaine and they 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 kill themselves yeah um, and then the other thing is it really they're, they're, they're distracted. They're, they're, they've got a plan B, but they've also got a plan C sure. and a plan D. Sure. And all of those things to distract from achieving what you want to do.
0: Yeah, absolutely.
1: Hannah Rosner, this was great. Thank you very much. We've been talking here to Hannah Rosner, who is uh, the director, the playwright, the uh, screenwriter for the movie Park City, and as I usually say, we can't tell people to go out and take a look at it, but uh, if you have the opportunity, it's a worthwhile hour and 25 minutes or 30 minutes. Well done, you.
0: Thank you. Very yes, and you, you can check out the film on Facebook, Facebook? and Twitter. Just uh, we're at facebook.com slash parkcitythemovie or parkcitythemovie.com. So.
1: And now do you have a website that people can go to?
0: Yes. Uh, really? you, well, I primarily am using the Park City website, uh, right now, ParkCityTheMovie.com. We're also on IMDb. I don't. I have a website, but it's really out of date. Okay. <laughs> so, <laughs> gotta update that.
1: Thank you very much. The name of our program is With Respect. We're on every Sunday morning at 11, and every Thursday morning at 10. And remember, uh, our mantra is: If you show respect to other people, they will show respect to you.